Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I felt very And what happened next? Well, I thought to myself, well, that's it. There's no more talking. I'm going to kill myself. But you know what? If I'm going to die, if I'm going to die, he's going to get his wish. The child's going to die. The three of us are going to die here right now. So I just couldn't uh, stop going down the steps. I just got up real fast and positioned myself behind him in the shot the first time. And uh, he died instantly. And he just fell, he just fell, his body just fell like this. And as he was, as he was going down, his one of, I think his right foot was still up in the air. And that's when it buckled and he lost his right shoe. Um, and his body just went boom. It just, I, you know, uh, in my head, it was on the third uh, step going down. I mean, it was, he was in the middle, maybe fourth, fifth, but he was in the middle of the stairs. And since he didn't make that sound, like, you know, if you were paying, since he didn't make that sound, it didn't move anymore, uh, I, uh, I, uh, I know, I know he was, he died from the first shot. And then, um, well, let's stop right there. So you were at the top of the steps, <laughs> and you shot him as he was walking down the steps. Yes. And you shot him once. I, I remember shooting the first time very vividly. I was on top of the stairs. And you think that shot killed him? I know it did. Okay. And why did you think that shot killed him? Because he made no sound ever of uh, being wounded or hurting. Um, and I saw that he never moved. The position that he felt, uh, he, the position that he fell on the floor, he never moved from that position. And so he fell on the floor at the bottom of the steps? He did. And then what did you do? Um, I want to say that I went down and shot him. Uh, uh, shot, shot more, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I didn't know if I hit him or not. But in my head, I shot three times, and I hit him three times, saying two words for myself. I didn't realize that I had shot five times, but I know for sure uh, in my head that I shot and hit him three times. Instead of taking her own life, as was the plan, Claudia instead turned the gun on Carl, shooting him three times. According to the forensic pathologist who later performed his autopsy, the first shot entered Carl's back from a distance. It entered his right upper back and traveled through his body, shattering his right shoulder in the process. That first shot fully incapacitated Carl, knocking him to the ground, but it didn't kill him as she alleged. Due to the angle of that first shot in the distance, they believed Carl was at the bottom of the stairs likely bending over and tying his shoe when the first shot rang out. He likely never saw the gun and didn't even realize what hit him. As he was on the ground, Claudia approached and shot him one more time in the back. The second shot entered closer to his neck and spine and likely would have proven fatal within just a few minutes. But Claudia continued advancing on Carl as he lay gravely wounded shooting two additional times and missing both shots on the way. Those bullets were found in the floor near Carl's body, but she continued closer to her husband, and instead of rendering aid or calling for help, she shot him a third time. The third shot was no more than 18 to 24 inches from the location of impact, and it was fatal. The bullet entered the right side of Carl's head and exited out the left, and then lodged into the floor beneath him. Claudia Herrig's Plan C was completed, but she wanted law enforcement to believe this was a crime of passion, at the most, second-degree murder. However, her behavior the days before Carl's senseless murder 
led them to believe it was an entirely planned and premeditated act. She bought the gun just three days before killing Carl. She had also wired the last of her savings account, almost $10,000, to her father in Brazil just the day before. She told authorities she transferred the money because she didn't want Carl to have any of it after she killed herself. Right after she killed Carl, Claudia went back upstairs into Eva's bedroom and placed the 357 Magnum into the suicide device she had constructed in her stepdaughter's closet. She then squeezed the trigger, but the gun simply clicked. She didn't realize she had already used all five of the bullets, so she went back down into the basement to reload the gun. But before turning it on herself and squeezing the trigger once again, she decided to call her family and tell them goodbye. Later, when investigators found the device in Eva's upstairs bedroom, they didn't believe it was a suicide device at all. Their theory was that Claudia had actually constructed a booby trap for whomever opened the door, but it failed to go off, forcing her to take matters into her own hands. What happened next wouldn't be told for nearly 11 years, because after she murdered Carl, Claudia fled to her native Brazil, a country with no extradition treaty with the United States for its Brazilian citizens not even for murder. It would take new laws and a decades-long odyssey to bring Claudia back to justice. One of Carl's best friends from the Air Force approached Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan for help in bringing Carl's killer to justice. In May of 2013, he passed an amendment to the Homeland Security Appropriations Subcommittee to restrict immigrant visas for Brazilian nationals and citizens. That included educational and work visas. Claudia, who became a citizen of the United States in 1999, had to renounce her Brazilian citizenship. In July of that same year, Brazil used this change as their basis to revoke Claudia's citizenship and to begin the process of sending her back to the U.S. to finally stand trial. But Claudia continued to stall the courts by appealing the decision until 2016, when Brazil's higher court upheld the decision to revoke her citizenship. But Claudia wasn't done with the legal maneuverings. Although she was finally arrested in Brazil, she demanded a trial in her native country where the maximum sentence for murder of any kind would have been no more than 30 years. While she was incarcerated and still exhausting her remaining legal remedies, Claudia was still allowed to go to her new accounting firm each day, a business she owned and operated herself that now employed many others. She was also allowed weekly private conjugal visits with her new husband, whom she married just three months after killing Carl. Of special note was that Claudia, all those years later, was still childless. Whether she had truly been pregnant or not at the time she shot her husband, no one will ever know. Only Claudia knows the truth, and she had no intention of sharing it with anyone. After a last-minute agreement to limit Claudia's maximum sentence between both countries, she was finally sent back to the United States for trial. On January 17, 2018, Claudia was escorted back to the United States by FBI Special Agent Anthony Sano, who would later claim that during the flight, Claudia told him that a wife doesn't kill her husband without a good reason. Upon Claudia's return to Ohio, she immediately filed a handwritten appeal to her extradition, stating that it was an illegal kidnapping from her native country. She tried to appeal on the basis that the district attorney and the lead detective had entered into a criminal conspiracy to deprive her of her due process rights. She demanded to be tried in Washington, D.C., where she wanted to be recognized as a political prisoner. She also sued the county sheriff where she was being housed over a dozen times. All of the lawsuits were handwritten and appeared frivolous in nature. In one of the lawsuits, she sued over the return of 15 mayonnaise packets that she believed were illegally removed from her cell during a search in an effort to make her appear insane. As a result of the repeated frivolous lawsuits, Claudia was declared a vexatious litigant, which means she is someone who files multiple lawsuits without substance or merit for the sole purpose of harassing or silencing another person or entity. According to her many handwritten court filings, Claudia was anything but a meek and submissive woman who did what she was told. She had no problem advocating for herself and demanding what she believed to be her rights. Not only did she have a firm grasp of the English language, she also had a firm grasp of the American legal system. Almost one year to the day she was returned to the U.S., Claudia stood trial for her former husband's cold-blooded and premeditated murder. 
she faced Carl's parents, brothers, children, and close friends for the first time after almost 11 years. Claudia never disputed that she was the one who shot Carl, and as a result, the prosecution didn't feel the need to put on a long list of witnesses. Their only goal was to prove that Claudia planned and premeditated Carl's murder, which they felt they had accomplished with their case in chief. They had the gun salesman testify to her desire to buy a weapon with maximum force and to procure ammunition that would cause maximum damage. Carl's friends testified as to Claudia's pathological jealousy. One woman even testified that Claudia told her that if Carl ever left her, she would kill him. Claudia was painted as an insanely jealous and envious woman who would cause a dramatic scene if anyone other than herself ever held Carl's attention, even his own children. To Claudia, Carl was an object that she owned. He was a possession from which she expected complete devotion, and she became enraged at the thought of his physical or emotional abandonment. What she didn't realize or care about was the aftermath she left behind in the wake of Carl's senseless murder. The devastation began on the day that Carl's body was found, when his best friend and co-worker Colonel Gary Dodge was the first person to suspect that something was wrong. Not showing up, not showing up was the red flag for me. When I came in to fly on my, the day I was flying, they said, hey, what's going on? You know, he didn't show up last night. And right then and there, you know, first of all, the first, the first alarm that went off in my head was we hadn't talked in a few days. You know, that, that didn't happen. Um, and then after not talking for a few days and I'm, you know, texting him and calling him, uh, then I walk in to fly and they said he didn't show up the night before. And right there, I knew something was wrong. What day was that? That was a Thursday morning, I believe the 15th was. So he should have been there Wednesday, he wasn't. That's correct. And what did you do? So I called him uh, and kind of left him a, a threatening message and just said, listen, Carl, I haven't heard from you. Uh, I know you're going through a tough time, but if I don't hear from you within the next 30 minutes, uh, I'm going to call the police and have them do a welfare check at your house. And uh, th that's what I ended up doing. You know, after 30 minutes, so I'm scheduled to fly, but after not hearing from him, I went ahead and made that call, called a uh, uh, police department, sent them uh, the Newton Falls police to his house. And then I'm talking to the officer on the phone and, and the officer got there and basically said, yeah, hey, his car's in the driveway, uh, the car's unlocked, uh, his cell phone, I believe, is in the center console. Again, all red flags that told me, okay, something's definitely wrong. And did you know Carl's parents were there? So they weren't there at the time, and what I did is I then called, uh, so I, I asked the police officer if he can go inside, and uh, being a former police officer myself, I know that you know you, have, you can't just go off my word to break into someone's house. So I, I asked him, okay, stay there, I'm gonna call Carl's dad and ask him if he would come by, let the police officer inside to do this welfare check. So uh, that's what I did, I, I called Carl's dad and said, look, I don't wanna alarm you, but I think something's wrong. And you know, I hope nothing, You know, I, I hope this is just an inconvenience to you, uh, but, you know, I, I would ask that you please go to Carl's house and let the police officer in. So that's what happened. Uh, then the police officer called me back, and I'm on the phone with the police officer when uh, when they made entry into the house. And then I actually, uh, unfortunately, I heard you know Carl's dad's reaction through the phone. And that was the end for Carl. It was. It was. Uh, so at that point, I mean, it was surreal. You know, numbing. Um, Sorry. <clears throat> Carl's father didn't testify at his son's murder trial, but he was there the day Carl's body was found. He let the police officer inside Carl's house to conduct the welfare check. The smell that permeated the air once the door was open foreshadowed the grim reality to come. Ed Herrig was confronted that day with a reality that no parent should ever have to experience. After coming upon his son Carl's bullet-ridden body in the doorway, he immediately knew that his daughter-in-law, Claudia, was the one responsible. Ed Herrig sat in the courtroom during each day of the trial and had to listen to the terrible allegations Claudia made against his son. She left no one unscathed, choosing to malign his entire family, including his children and his ex-wife. Claudia took the witness stand in her own defense and was allowed to tell her version of the truth without any supporting documentation or corroborating evidence. It was her truth against the truth of a dead man. 
But Trumbull County Prosecutor Dennis Watkins had a plan. He had heard Claudia's three-hour confession she made when she was initially returned to the United States. He knew that allowing Claudia to speak uninterrupted would serve a calculated strategy. Instead of initiating the proper procedural objections during her testimony, he chose to remain quiet, instead allowing her to speak her version of truth, mostly uninterrupted. Watkins had faith that the jury would see through her fabricated one-sided retelling of events where she was the victim and Carl was the abuser. However, on cross-examination, he wasn't quite so forgiving. By the time she testified at her own trial, Claudia had already enjoyed nearly 11 years of freedom. In that time, she was able to build a new life, a new business, a new home, and had even established a new marriage. She had lived a full life after taking Carl's, and it seemed never looked back. Dennis Watkins was done with allowing Claudia's version of truth to stand unopposed. You lived your life with your husband for almost 11 years in Brazil, right? No. Close to 11 years. I didn't live my life. You didn't live your life? No. You didn't have a, a marriage? You didn't have a... a no. I had a nightmare. Okay. You got to celebrate holidays, Christmas, no, birthdays, you didn't do any of that? No. Okay. I worked 365 days a year. Okay. And you got to tell this story to this jury by getting on that witness stand yesterday, correct? Yes. All right. And we got over three hours of your story yesterday, correct? I, uh, I, don't, I wasn't watching the clock. Right. And the vast majority of your testimony yesterday was just basically telling us how bad Carl Herrick was, correct? Uh, not exactly. I was All telling right. things All right. I, good and bad, and, and I was telling the whole story. Right. They were good and bad sides. Claudia who had described herself as easygoing and someone who was raised to do what men told her, was no longer as submissive as she had been on direct examination. Because of actions you took on March 12, 2007, you would agree that Carl Herod cannot come in this courtroom and tell his version of events, correct? Neither can my three children that he killed. I'm asking you whether Carl Herod, please try and listen to the question, can Carl Herod come in and tell his side of the story? It's an easy question, yes or no? Yes, he can. He can? Yes. Where is he going to come from? If you tell the truth to this court, he can, because I have a recording of every day of my life for two years, and this court knows, and Dennis Watkins know, and you know that my whole life was recorded with voice recording, and it's not in here, it was not brought in as evidence. Why are you lying to this court, to this jury, and to Brazil, and to me, to my face? Right. Could you bring my computer here and play the whole tape for these people to hear the whole truth. You have two lawyers that are appointed for you to I don't know what they did, I know what you did. Once meek and submissive Claudia had finally found her voice, she also let the jury know that she had secretly carried around a tape recorder for nearly two years, capturing all of her interactions with Carl. She believed that those recordings would have proven her version of events. She even had the audacity to testify that those secret tapes would magically bring Carl back to life for the jury, whereupon they would clearly agree that he deserved to die. Even though Claudia was an educated woman who owned multiple properties, spoke several languages, and even taught English as a second language, she was now suddenly unable to understand many of the questions asked of her while under cross-examination. Prosecutor Watkins asked Claudia if all of the things she had previously testified to like paying for groceries or being forced to wear open-toed shoes, a surprise engagement party, the quick marriage, or any of her other allegations had anything to do with the reasons why she eventually shot and killed Carl. So we heard all kinds of testimony yesterday, and you told this detective all kinds of terrible things about Carl Herod that really don't have any bearing on you shooting him, correct? No, it was strictly about the pregnancy. Okay. But all the other bad things were just a bad mouth Carl Herrick who can't come into this courtroom and sit here and see that. Okay. No, that had an impact on my mental health, and I didn't realize. 
Okay, so those things were in your mind then, correct? I didn't realize I was just sick. I didn't realize that it was that those things made me sick. I was sick, sick enough that I didn't realize that I was sick. But those things were in your mind when you shot it. No. Prosecutor Watkins asked Claudia to explain her thoughts the day she shot Carl. She explained once again how she felt betrayed that Carl was rejecting her child and that he instead had plans to raise his own grandchild. Now you're feeling betrayed. He's told you twice now he doesn't want the baby. He gets out of the shower and you're going to commit suicide, right? I was trying to get his attention. You weren't going to kill yourself though, right? That was plan B. I was, I, my plan A is for us to work out things between us. So we're still on plan A at that point, correct? Yes. Oh, okay. So he comes out and tells you again, you said he grabbed you and pushed you down, correct? Yes. Alright. And you'd agree, like I asked you earlier, there's no way that Carl Herod can dispute or admit or even deny that he did that that day, correct? Correct. The only witness and the only person who could tell us that, what happened in that house on March 12th, is you. Correct. All right. Now, you kept trying to talk him into the baby even after he pushed you down, correct? I didn't talk about baby anymore. I just asked for us to talk more. He right. said it was done talking. And he turned around and walked away. Yeah, he turned around. Uh, uh, he didn't want to talk to me anymore. And yes, he made this thing. These are very easy questions. Did he turn around and walk away from you? He did. All right. And at that point, did he say to you, now let's, let's go back a minute here. Prior to that, you told him you were trying to keep the baby. You told him you'd take care of it, correct? Yeah. All right. You told him that, um, well, you told this jury yesterday that you already had a boyfriend on Match.com, correct, at Bruce. Mm -hmm. You still had your condo in New York, correct? Mm -hmm. You had already talked about getting a job back in New York with your old accounting firm, correct? Yes. And that would be with, um, I believe, Mr. Andy Wilder? Yes, he was one of my options. And he was also another boyfriend you had, correct? Never. Never? No. Would you like to see this, the... Uh, yes. Yeah, there were some emails between you, correct? Yeah, yeah. They were? Yeah. Yeah, some kind of leading on like you yeah, should... Yeah, you know, men and women, they can flirt, but I never okay. had anything with him. And I have no reason to hide that. Right. So he he, he indicated to Is you... Is that a crime? I'm, I asked the questions here. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you have a... Did you flirt with Andy Wilder? Uh, over the emails, I may have done that. I, I don't remember yes or no. I cannot say yes or no. We did flirt. Okay. And he was married? Yes. And you're but married. Well, just the words. Yes or no? Uh, yes. All right. All right. So you have the boyfriend Bruce on Match.com. You're flirting with Andy Wilder. You have the job in New York. You have your condo in New York. You're going to keep the baby. But you want this jury to believe that plan B is suicide, correct? Yes. On redirect, Claudia's attorney attempted to run damage control on her testimony. Specifically, he needed to address Claudia's inflammatory comments that she believed Carl could testify if her secret tape recordings had been admitted into evidence. Now, at the beginning of this testimony, um, in response to the state's question, um, you started talking about recordings that were on your computer, correct? Correct. Um, did you make uh, recordings of your daily life? Yes, I did. And how did you make those? I carry um, a tape recorder on my waist 24 hours a day. And where did you save those recordings? On my computer, my PC that's in... Trumbull County Jail. Okay. And why did you make those reports? Because I have OCD and I had a very bad first marriage with Thomas Bolte and he put me through hell made me think that things that he said he didn't say so I developed the habit of recording myself okay. to see if I was crazy or not because he always denied the things that he said. Okay. So I developed a syndrome. I, um, Mania, 
what's the word? Um, I became obsessed with recording things to make sure I wasn't crazy. When Carl was shot, his car was packed with his personal belongings, and he had already rented a small house just a few blocks away and was tying his shoes, readying himself to walk out the front door and out of Claudia's life forever. Defense counsel wanted the jury to know that Carl wasn't shot because he was leaving her. On redirect, Claudia wanted the jury to know that it in fact was Carl's fault that she shot him. On March 12th, you had plan A and plan B, right? Yes. And plan A was fix the marriage and have the baby. That's, that's correct. That's what you wanted to happen. That's what I wanted, yes. And were you fighting for that to happen? I was fighting very hard. I wrote a letter to him and to his friends to see if his friends would advise him to, um, to work on his marriage. And plan B was to kill yourself. Yeah, if he said, absolutely said, no way, um, I don't want to fix the marriage, I felt I couldn't raise a child by myself, so I would rather die. And was your intent to kill yourself right after he said no the first time? Uh, it was my intention absolutely to kill myself on the 12th. Okay. But was your intent to just take no for an answer once from him? No, I was going to fight for it. Okay. And when he came out of the, the bedroom and you had the, the gun to your head, what were you doing? I was trying to get his attention. Okay. Were you fighting for plan A? Plan A. Okay. And on your recorded statement we watched, um, you stated he'd still be alive if he didn't say those things, right? That's correct. And what things did he say? He said, um, that's a good idea, but wait for me to leave the house and go kill yourself in the basement so you don't get blood in my paintings. And that's what triggered you to stand up and shoot? Yes, I got very, very, very angry when he said that. After she killed Carl, Claudia claimed that she used her recoil device and attempted to kill herself but there were no more bullets left in the gun. So she went to the basement to reload it, but decided to call her family one more time to say goodbye. Her sister's husband was a pastor. He told her on the phone that she was a good Christian woman and that she would go to hell if she killed herself. According to her testimony, she knew her dead babies would all be in heaven and that she needed to make sure they could be together in eternity. They also told her if she stayed in Ohio that she would likely get the death penalty. While she was prepared to die at her own hand, she was not prepared to die at the hands of the state. She cried and told her father that she wanted to die because she had nothing else to live for. That's when, according to Claudia, he began directing her to plot her escape. My father was directing me and my father was not the type that would ever direct me or tell me what to do. I felt like the little girl that daddy is taking care of and allowed myself to be directed. And he directed me um, out of that place. I didn't even really have a reason to, to leave that place. I wanted to call the police and, and uh, get it over with. Um, since I was not going to commit suicide anymore because my brother-in-law instilled that fear of death in me, of hell, I said, I'm not going to kill myself. I'm in bigger trouble. I caused the bigger problem. Now the man's dead. I'm alive. Everything went wrong. I don't have the courage to kill myself. So <laughs> it got worse. So I didn't really want to learn, but I was gonna call uh, the police and, you know, I had no good reason to live. Uh, but my father didn't let me, he, uh, he directed me and I followed his direction, just like my father said. He was on the phone with me, directing me to this, to that, and I'm a good direction taker. I took the direction. Claudia followed her father's direction all the way to the bank to take out her last $3,000 and to pick up her passport. 
She then used her husband's family pass to fly free to Pittsburgh and then to New York. Once there, she bought a ticket to Sao Paulo and then to Rio de Janeiro. Once she landed back in Brazil, Claudia went directly to a hotel because she thought her father would get into trouble for harboring a fugitive. She then claimed that she once again planned to kill herself. She spent more than she could afford and rented a room on the highest floor possible so that she could jump from the window and end her life. However, she didn't want to risk falling on an innocent person, so she instead decided to take a nap and wait for nightfall. According to her recollection, she wanted to jump when there would be less people on the street. Unfortunately, as nightfall descended, there was a car parked directly beneath her room, and she was concerned it would cushion her fall and that she might somehow survive the jump and be disfigured or left a paraplegic. She then claimed she planned to wait another day, but that when her phone rang, fate intervened once again, interfering with her deadly intentions. The phone rings and it's calling me. And it was my father and he had that number because I had just called him before to tell him where I was. And he said, I spoke to a lawyer and I found out that, yes, you can be in my house, I'm not gonna get arrested. You can stay in my house. Um, I'm gonna take you with me. Um, you're my daughter and I love you. When my father said those words to me, um, that's what I had waited for 42 hours, three years. My father's not a very, he's not a very loving father. I know he loves me. I know he loved me then. But he never said those words to me before. <laughs> So when my father told me he loved me. <laughs> there are tissues behind you. <laughs> he brought out the little girl in me. The shoes would have been that song. So I said, God, I know I'm going to kill myself, but this doesn't have to be today. I can spend a couple more days with my my dad, my father was never loving, father, I'm sorry dad, I'm sorry, but you know you're not, my father was, I know he, he had the loving in his heart for me, he just didn't know how to express, that was the first time ever in my life he told me he loved me. So I went to be with him. I said, I'm gonna go with my father. If there is a loving father there, I wanna meet that father that I haven't met in 42 years. So I wanted to know that man that was in there that loved me. So I said, okay, okay, I'm gonna go with you. It was so beautiful. He came in a cab like he was, like I was a princess, his princess that he's gonna rescue me. Claudia spent the next three days with her father, collected the money she had previously wired to him, and then went to the city of Brasilia to spend a few days with her sister. She felt like God was giving her closure and the opportunity to say her goodbyes. According to Claudia, she was still grieving for Carl and their lost children and was determined to follow through with her plan for suicide. She eventually purchased a piece of land in a middle-income suburb and decided she was going to take the last of her money and build a shack on the property large enough to house her small car. Her plan was to die by carbon monoxide poisoning from the exhaust once the shack was built. Despite this foolproof plan, Claudia encountered yet another obstacle. The engine in her car was extremely loud, and once inside of the shack, the noise became amplified. She then grew concerned that a neighbor would hear the noise and come calling to help. She thought she would have to wait a few months for a loud festival on one of the saints' days to complete her plan. While she was waiting, she unintentionally fell in love with a man who needed her just as much as she needed a way out of her plan to commit suicide. But in the meantime, the guy that built my shack, he was a worker on the construction uh, store, and uh, he we became close because he was I was meeting with him 
frequently for him to tell him how I wanted him to build the shack. And he was the only person I was talking to who was running away from my family. My family wanted to commit me, so I didn't want to be near them. Uh, I didn't want to be near anybody that knew me because they were going to put me in a mental institution. Um, the gentleman you were talking about who you met who was um, the worker, uh, you eventually married him? I did. Okay. And he's your third husband? Yes. Uh, and he's in Brazil? Yes. On... He's a very simple man. He uh, is an educated. He really he, he doesn't know how to speak well. He's a very simple man. Claudia didn't testify to was that she lived in a successful middle-class neighborhood with her younger husband. She also failed to mention that she had since started her own accounting practice and had several people working under her. She no longer felt like she could kill herself because her new uneducated and simple-minded husband needed her to take care of him. She dedicated her last few minutes on the witness stand to letting the jury know once again that it was indeed Carl's fault that he was dead and that she was off living her best life. On March 12th, uh, 2007, um, did you plan to kill Carl Horry? Never, never, never for a second. Okay. Um, if he not said uh, the words he said to you uh, while you were on the landing, would you have killed him? Oh, no, he would be alive now. I would have been dead. Okay. Um, so you killed him because you were upset about what he said to you? I uh, I didn't lose. I, I lost. I got very angry. I thought it was something that you don't tell anybody, and mainly your wife that's killing your child. I I lost control of my myself. And were you upset that he grabbed you by the throat and pushed you down? Objection. This all meeting. Claudia was the only witness called in by her defense. And despite her previous cruel assertions to the contrary, her victim was unable to testify from the grave as she so outrageously suggested throughout her trial. It's not known if Carl was aware that his wife had been secretly recording him for years. Though, if those recordings had been introduced at trial, they wouldn't have bolstered Claudia's claims of being a submissive and captive wife to a sexually deviant husband. If anything, they revealed the dysfunctional relationship that Carl suffered with after a fateful and impulsive decision to marry a virtual stranger. A stranger who for 50 days was able to paint a picture of an emotionally healthy, loving, and adventurous companion. The family meeting that Claudia testified to and described as an intervention for Carl's mental health was in reality nothing more than a desperate attempt by a wife trying to hang on to the husband she held as an emotional hostage. Under the guise of helping Carl, she continued her manipulation tactics, not only on him, but also on his entire family. No one will ever know if Claudia was truly depressed and wanted to commit suicide, or if the whole thing was simply a ruse she used to emotionally blackmail the husband she saw quickly slipping away. True intervention is usually a process where a family and friends and some type of addiction or mental health specialist help to facilitate a conversation between all parties. It's a carefully planned event where loved ones can gather and confront the person whom they believe needs either medical or psychological help. But Claudia's intervention would best be described as an ambush. Not only was the event a surprise to Carl, it was also a total surprise to his entire family certainly wasn't a coordinated effort with a specific goal to get Carl to accept psychiatric help. And since the secret tapes weren't admissible in court as evidence, Claudia had them published online for all to hear. First of all, this kind of theatrical drama, that's a problem. I don't want to live this way. You pulled a stunt on me right now. I'm done with that. This is not how I live. This is what I call a loving situation. You don't get how it's done. And you want to put it on me? I'll take 100% of the blame. And okay, if this, is the way, if this is the way it has to be, I'm going to tell you something right here and now. I will do the, everything the best that I can to take care of you, but I see us done. I'll provide and pay and take care of every problem and make things as painless as I can. 
But this little thing here pretty much seals the deal. If you don't want to deal with me and you want to involve other people, you do things different than I do. Far too different. On February 5th, 2007, just a little over a month before Carl was shot to death, he came home to find his parents in his living room and was informed by Claudia that there were additional members of his family due to arrive, specifically all of his brothers and their wives. This was the alleged intervention that Claudia had arranged after claiming that Carl's mental state had deteriorated to the point she could no longer care for him and that she needed his family's help to force him to get psychiatric help. Claudia began the meeting by complaining that Carl stayed out too late with his friends and that he was avoiding her. She felt like Carl didn't want to spend time with her. Carl's father, Ed, told them both that if they were unhappy, that they should either go to a counselor or call an attorney. You want to sit here and be a lawyer and prove that I'm a liar, then damn it, I don't want to be with you. You get that? You understand? I don't live that way. I don't want to live that way. Well, today is because I'm a liar. Yesterday was because I questioned you where you were all day to answer your phone. Uh, and it, because there was no, no companionship, that was the, the, the reason yesterday. He said there was no companionship. He travels blocks of four days, turns into five days because there was a commute day. On the fifth day, he doesn't come home. He goes skiing overnight with his friends, or he comes home at two, three o'clock in the, in the morning, and I go to work in, in the morning, I kiss him goodbye. When I come home, he's gone for another four or five days. So I don't see him, uh, Ever. Okay, and if you add up the hours that I see him, in one year has not added up to 20 days. I haven't seen you in 20 days, in one year. Because the hours we spend together can be counted in minutes, in one day, in minutes. That's how little I see you. And you're telling me there is no companionship? I am the one that is alone. Because every opportunity you have to be with me, you choose to be with somebody else or you choose to fight with me. Claudia felt like Carl didn't want to spend time with her and was going out of his way to avoid her. She then gave his family examples of his cold and callous behavior. I am in the middle of a pack season. My husband is never home with me. Who is not keeping company to home here? So it's always something. If you're moving target, whatever I do, you always change the reason why you want to happen. And he tells me every day, I don't think happy. the reason, there's just a lot of reasons. And, 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 and when I ask, give me the reason, it's always the reason of the day. It's never a full story, and it changes. So when I confront him, he asked me for divorce here about four year, weeks ago. Okay, and I said, Carl, when we got married, I told you there were, you told me, you Carl told me, Chris, that there was no eject button, okay? Now, he wants to press the eject button. I reminded him, Carl, you said there was no eject button on this marriage. He said, you can hold me to this marriage. I'm very unhappy, and if you force me to stay in this marriage, I'll sell everything, I'll move to Montana. Claudia's attempts at controlling Carl only served to push him further away. He couldn't comprehend her pathological jealousy with the other women in his life. He was a very loyal person and couldn't understand why she was so jealous of his ex-wife, his children, and even the wives and girlfriends of his closest friends. To avoid getting in fights altogether, Carl began to avoid spending time with Claudia in social settings. He wanted to avoid the hysteria and dramatic scenes that she created. Claudia's constant accusations and Carl's avoidance served to alienate them both from one another. Each time Carl brought up a separation or divorce, he worried that she would say she was pregnant again or that she would attempt suicide. Claudia saw things differently. She saw his attempts to get out of their marriage as the ultimate form of betrayal. He promised her that their marriage was forever and that there was no, quote, eject button she had intended to hold him to that promise. But he can never ever say to me, I love you on the phone. Doesn't matter how many times I tell him, goodbye honey, I love you. I will not hear it back. But he tells it freely to his 
to break and to leave us. He won't tell me. He won't tell me he loves me. Then I said, you know what the problem is, Carl? It's nothing that I do. Because when people love each other, they get away with murder. They get away with anything. I don't get away with anything. You tell me when we fight that I am the best woman you ever had. That I'm the best relationship you ever had. And then you point out, out all those problems. You asked me for divorce, I gave you divorce. Now you're telling me you don't want a divorce. But I'm telling you, the only reason you you tell me these things that you're miserable from day one is because you don't love me. No, it's not that I think you're wrong. It's not a, not that. If you just listen to me, everything will be fine between us. And I listen to you. It's a moving target. You don't do the things that a husband's supposed to do in a marriage. You never home. You never give me a wedding ring. You don't give me a penny in this marriage. I support myself fully and I pay my half in this house. So I am the perfect woman. Claudia felt unloved in the relationship and she wanted Carl to be more affectionate and more interested in mutual conversation. But she couldn't grasp the fact that her controlling behavior was driving him away. She saw herself as blameless because she was the perfect woman. You always speak to me in a rude uh, uh, tone, always. If I say anything, hi dear, hi honey, I said the whole thing, and you snap at me, and you raise your voice, you rude to me. Why? Well, I'll tell you, there's two sides to every story. And I'm not even going to tell my side, because I'm not going to sort of yelling in front of other people and saying this kind of stuff. But there's two sides to every story. And you are the hardest person to get along with I've ever met. I'll just leave it at that. You don't understand what being married is. If you want to put it all on me, I'll take every 100% of the blame here. And I will give you money. Oh, any arrangement you want, but I'm never going through one of these scenes again, ever. I'm not having the cops come here because of some craziness or, or crazy calls about crazy shit going on places. Now, you, you want to tell the not, people why you haven't walked away before? You want to tell them why? Because he's afraid that I'm going to kill myself. Yeah, you you lay that card down how you're going to do some harm to yourself. Or he's afraid I'm going to quit my job. You're going to harm yourself. Is that what you said? It has a lot to do with it. Right. That's I don't what, what you're so why didn't you, you Why didn't you tell them that we were... I don't want to tell And in the meantime, you say, and you make me miserable every time I, I say don't. we're done, you say, no, no, let's make it work. Carl's family was stunned into silence for most of the meeting. Occasionally, Carl's father would suggest that they get some professional help and make a final decision. He didn't see a healthy relationship between his son and his new daughter-in-law. He was pushing the couple towards counseling or a divorce lawyer. You said, I am dramatic. Hold on, you've gone on for like 20 minutes. I just, you say these things and you put them out there like they're truisms. This thing is, I sat out there and I rang that doorbell and I called because I don't want to get shot when I come in my own house. And I finally came in and the things went off and I saw you and I went to shut off the TV and wake you up to go to bed. And you didn't just take a deep breath, you went like somebody just jabbed you with a sharp stick. And I'm like, oh God, I can't believe this. It's always something. I'm afraid to come in my house because I don't want to get shot, okay? I'm uncomfortable here. I quit working on the house because I can't, I don't, there's no joy here. You are not this little mousy little nice little person to be around. You're hell to be around, you understand? Be specific, be specific. Because I'm not understand why I'm hell. Because you are. You know, so this is going to go on forever. You're both arguing at each other. I don't want to argue. And it's, don't be embarrassed. We're trying to understand this. We're trying to help both of them. Why wouldn't I be embarrassed? I didn't even know this was going to happen. I understand that. I didn't know it was going to happen either. And I didn't well, know it was going to happen either. You're not happy, and she's not happy. You either are going to try to make it a marriage, or you get the hell away from each other. You're screwing up a lot of people's lives right now.
In psychology, the term triangulation refers to an unhealthy technique that emotionally unstable people use to manipulate a situation to their benefit. Often in marriage counseling, one partner will unknowingly use the strategy to garner sympathy and to portray themselves as a victim. Claudia's desire to bring Carl's parents into their marital problems in an attempt to get them on her side is a classic example of triangulation. You're the one who won't listen to any doctor we ever go to, or you have to stand in there and not let me talk to my own doctor. You have the dominant personality here. You make this hard. I am a quiet person who tends to get pushed around by other people. I don't like it. I let you get away with stuff that's outrageous. Outrageous. Eye-rolling stuff in the eyes of a lot of people. And I let you get away with it because I'm patient and kind. But you don't see me that way. But even a patient and kind person can only comes to little critical turning points when things go on. It's like, oh, even I can't take it anymore. You don't see it that way. Going to a counselor, you taking the advice of the counselor, it's going to be rougher on you than it is on me. Because I did it. I was with Rhonda. I lived with her for 13 years. And in between awful things going on, we had love, a loving marriage from time to time, and quite often, and she's difficult, and she's went through four husbands, and I was with her the longest of all of them. I know about this stuff. Carl was embarrassed that his family was present for almost 40 minutes while Claudia explained to them what a terrible person he was. He was frustrated because he knew the real Claudia, not the victimized, weak, and submissive wife that she was portraying herself to be in front of his family. Carl saw her as a highly intelligent and assertive professional who dominated all conversations. Well, it's only, you're hurting each other is the whole problem. I understand what she's saying. When you're advanced off, you don't come home. She's very hard to be around. Well, it's not trying. That's what I'm saying. If you don't want to be here, then get away from each other. Why, why are you hurting her feelings? And well, why are you not hurting your feelings? Whenever I try to talk about it in depth, try to get to the root of things, she talks about, this makes me unstable and I'm going to go do something. And she talks about the worst outcomes. And I'm paralyzed to even try to do anything because to upset her, she's She's got a gun to a woman's head, you know, and and I am being I am in a hostage situation, more or less. You do that, and to cripple your job or your future or who you are, I care about you, and I don't want you doing harm to yourself. And I'm willing to be unhappy to prevent you from harming yourself. I'm willing to say I haven't had it. I haven't enjoyed myself in a year and a half, but so what? So what? That isn't as important as making sure this lady gets her shit together. It is a sign of emotional abuse when one partner regularly threatens suicide to control and manipulate the other partner from leaving a relationship. Someone trapped in this type of destructive cycle can find it difficult to establish healthy boundaries out of fear for the other person's safety, especially without guidance from a mental health professional. Yeah, and if I were to, you would ask me what I want to do right now. I want to get an apartment and leave. I don't like this from you. I do not like it. I've never been subjected to this kind of stuff. And you think that that's all kind. No, it's well, not kind. It's what? the only resource that I had. You've been before I lose before before, before I lose my job and my sanity. I did this today because I was about to do something crazy today. And I said, before I do something crazy, I'm going to give myself and him a chance. I am to the point of insanity. That's why I called them here today. To see if that they can bring me back to sanity because I'm the end of my rope over here. Once again, when Carl mentions wanting to end the marriage, to leave, and to rent his own apartment, Claudia immediately brings the conversation back to killing herself. While this tactic had always been effective in the past, it was quickly losing its power. Claudia's desperation began to increase. She was never going to allow Carl to push the eject button on their marriage. I don't want to be married to you. You 
you are the you I can't take it. You you say things they're not even true. I didn't want to have a baby with you because I didn't trust you and I don't I didn't trust how this baby just boom appeared to somebody who couldn't get pregnant. And I went through that once already in my life. Enough. Enough of you. This is stuff you should be telling counselors, not not us. I don't want to say it. I've ambushed and hijacked into this situation I don't even want to be in. And you're forcing me to say things. If I tipped my hand, you'd be the one sitting here all embarrassed. But I don't want to do that to you. I want you to at least be able to walk out with some dignity, which I can't. And, and, and if we divorce in five years, I still got to face everybody. These, I'm going to be with these people forever. After hearing enough of the personal attacks, Carl's brother Steve erupted, confronting Claudia head-on, challenging her to be her own person, and confronting her with the truth that if she couldn't first love herself, then she could never love his brother, or anyone else for that matter. When Claudia realized she was losing control of the meeting, she frantically ran from the room, grabbed a pistol, and hit it. It was unclear if it was Carl's gun or one of his brother's although his brother did repeatedly say that he didn't want to leave until she gave it back to him. Claudia had once again manipulated everyone into worrying about her safety. However, it was never Claudia's safety that was at risk of harm, a reality she eerily foreshadowed before the intervention concluded. I have it, and then he's not going to get it back. Well, I just want it to... He's not going to get shot. Don't worry about it. I don't want you to shoot anybody else, either. Nobody's going to get shot. So don't worry about that. That's not going to happen. You have my word. He's not going to get shot, and none of you will get shot. So you can well, go and see. Well, my life is my problem. No, I, that's not going to happen. I want that's that. That's why I want to kill him. Look, I can go out and get another one. So you're going to have to get your own net. Okay. You're not going to find but, uh, you're, You can't do this. My life is my problem. Okay? But thank you for coming. He's not going to get shot. Claudia had so many times feigned her inevitable suicide before that no one saw the glaring red flags right there in front of them. Carl and his family as they had on numerous occasions before, worried about Claudia and her well-being, likely never fully comprehending the gravity in her prophetic words. They never saw her as the threat she truly was to Carl, and perhaps never understood how truly dangerous she was all along. Carl Herrig was only alive for five short weeks after Claudia's botched intervention. Whether he knew it or not, he likely effectively sealed his own fate when he told Claudia that their marriage was over. When Carl had finally had enough and was ready to leave, she made him pay the ultimate price with his life. At Claudia's eventual sentencing hearing, Carl's daughter Eva took to the podium to give her victim impact statement, sharing with the court an important last lesson her father taught her while he was still alive. I want to list all the ways listening to Claudia excuse her actions for the last year was inaccurate and unbearable. That was unfair to my family, my dad, and myself. I want desperately to pull things apart, analyze them, and tell the whole world how ridiculous everything she said was. But my dad wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't be very happy with me if I did it either. He was better than that, so the best I can do is listen to his lessons and be the daughter he raised me to be. I have pages and pages of notes. I realize now that I will never have the words, but the gist of it is this. My dad was the greatest, most wonderful, best ever, should have won a trophy dad. I never told him that. Maybe I didn't know it yet, or maybe I was too young to understand, but I never told him, and it is completely and totally unfair that he isn't in my family or my family's life anymore. And uh, my dad taught me one more lesson. He taught me that sometimes 
other people know better than you do. So I completely support the prosecution's recommendation. Even without hearing Carl's voice from beyond the grave via the tapes, the jury convicted Claudia Herrig of his intentional, premeditated murder. Because of the sentencing agreement with Brazil, Claudia's maximum allowable sentence was not to exceed 30 years. As a result, she received 25 years to life for his murder, plus an additional three years on a special gun charge. When she is finally eligible for parole, her sentence can only be extended for an additional two years, for a maximum total amount not to exceed 30 years in prison. During Carl's funeral, an emotional and humbling missing man formation of C-130 aircraft flew overhead to commemorate his honorable service in the United States Air Force and to give him the proper send-off he so deserved. It was also later revealed by a close friend that just the week before Carl's tragic murder, they went flying together. As they stared off into the horizon, Carl reflected on his life and said, quote, When I take my final flight west into the setting sun, and look back over my shoulders. I hope the people who knew me were glad they did.